0: Welcome to 1867 and All That, Season 2, Episode 11, George Brown Falls in Love. In the summer of 1862, George Brown, the proprietor of Canada's most successful newspaper, but also a man defeated and out of Parliament, who had spent much of the last year in a sickbed, decided to take a trip. He sailed from Quebec for Liverpool. Even as he sailed on his almost 10-day journey, Back in Toronto, his mother died. It had not been a good year for Brown, but his luck was about to change. When Brown set foot in the land of his birth, he proceeded to spend the next five months on a kind of gap year, resetting himself, rethinking his life, and discovering romance. A number of historians suggest that this trip changed George Brown and also quite possibly transformed Canada. It's an appealing argument that isn't as crazy as it sounds. Brown travelled initially to London and did what so many Canadian parliamentarians did, headed for the visitor's gallery of the greatest parliament in the world, the House of Commons at Westminster. It just happened that British MPs were discussing something about which Brown knew a great deal, Canada. The Canadian government had fallen on a militia bill that was supposed to have led to the colony taking up a large portion of the cost of her own defense. Why many in Britain wanted to know did Canada fail in its charge? Wasn't this the whole point of granting the colonial's responsible government? Brown listened as some radicals even suggested that the colonies in the empire weren't worth it, too expensive. And here was the proof. Luckily, Brown also met with more senior officials who showed that they understood a little better the complications of governing in the Canadas, so he wasn't entirely alarmed. On a more personal level, Brown also ran into a childhood friend, Thomas Nelson, one of the Nelson brothers from Edinburgh, with whom he had gone to school. The sons of a Scottish publisher, the men were now successful in their own right and invited Brown to stay with them when he visited Edinburgh. Brown accepted him. When he showed up at the Nelson home, he didn't want to leave. That's where he met their sister, Anne. Anne was 10 years younger than Brown. Like Brown, she was a devout Scottish Freekirk Presbyterian. She had traveled on the continent and often visited London. For whatever reason, even though the two had been contentedly single for all of their lives up until this point, over the next five weeks, they fell in love. It was all very much a Hello Cupid type love story with long walks on the beach, staring out into the ocean. On one of these walks, Brown proposed and Anne accepted. They didn't dowie. By early December, the couple were married. They enjoyed a short little honeymoon and then set sail along with one of her brothers for New York. It was a rough crossing that Anne's brother spent trying not to throw up while the newlyweds were apparently fine, spending much of the time in their cabin. As you do. From New York, the couple went, of course, to Niagara Falls for Christmas. Travelling home, the couple arrived at Hamilton to a surprise. Several of Brown's business and political friends greeted him at the station and told him they had booked a special train to take the couple back to Toronto. When George Brown and his new bride arrived in Toronto that winter day, they discovered a crowd of 5,000 Upper Canadians had gathered to welcome them. With shouts and cheers, songs and chants, the couple traveled through the streets of Toronto while onlookers carried torches and set off fireworks. Of course, speeches were expected. No one seems to have liked a speech more than a Victorian crowd. Some observers noted then and since that Brown's tone seemed changed. Ever the pit-brawling partisan a governmental impossibility, Brown set a more generous tone. Addressing his welcoming crowd, he claimed that, quote, after six months' visit to the noblest and best-governed land on earth, I feel more than ever the necessity for upper Canadians of all shades of political opinion to unite heartily in advancing the great interests of our country, to forget the minor differences which have so long separated us. He hoped, quote, that Whenever the great interests of Canada are at risk, we will forget our merely political partisanship and rally round the cause of our country. These sentiments might have come easily in the glow of newlywed bliss, but would the generosity stick? To start, Brown's trip seems to have had no effect whatsoever. Brown successfully ran for Parliament in a by-election, and he found himself sitting on the sidelines and watching with alarm the experiment of a John Sandfield MacDonald government. Sandfield MacDonald and his uh, lower Canadian ally, Seacott, were trying to show that moderate reformers could ally across the upper-lower Canadian divide along the principle of the double majority, and it, it wasn't going well. When we last left Sandfield MacDonald, in fact, John A. Macdonald had just moved a motion of non-confidence. The motion passed and the government fell, so much for the double majority. In the wake of that non-confidence motion, parliamentarians gathered in taverns and hotels. They wrote letters to each other and met to discuss who on earth, or what kind of combination of whose, could govern Canada. Brown was involved, and so too was the old John A. Macdonald and George Cartier combination. But in the end, somewhat amazingly, it was Sandfield MacDonald who scrabbled together a renewed coalition of reformers and moderates. The trick was, though, that he essentially had to give up on the idea of the double majority, invite in a a host of Brown-supporting grits, and announce that representation by population would now be an open question for his government. He wouldn't commit himself to rep by pop, though many in Upper Canada wished he would, But just like Macdonald and Cartier, he essentially said that he would leave his supporters free to decide on this as they wished. Having cobbled together a new coalition, the Governor-General dissolved Parliament and set in motion a new election where this government could attempt to win the support of the people. Yes, another election. Maybe, just maybe, Canadians would give someone a substantial majority so that they could effectively govern. But no, it was not to be. Sanfield's new government, filled as it was with many more of George Brown's supporters, more grits, did quite well in Upper Canada and won a sizable majority in that section. Johnny MacDonald and his Tories were definitely on the decline there. In Lower Canada, though, the situation was reversed. The old Bleu coalition began to reform around George-Étienne Cartier and move away from the government. In forming his government, Sandfield had been forced to get rid of Sicot and bring back in George Brown's sometime ally, Antoine Aimé Dorian. Dorian and Sandfield won a decent number of supporters, but nowhere near enough. So, when Parliament met again after the election in August of 1863, Sandfield Macdonald was in no way certain that his majority would hold. Repeatedly, opposition members announced their dislike of the government, criticizing its approach to the militia, to railway policy, to rep by pop, and other matters. Again and again, members proposed motions of non-confidence and the government barely held on, hanging on to life by only two or three votes. They were literally one bad cold and a slip on the ice from the government falling it didn't help that he kept bickering with George Brown over the famous editor's support or not of his ministry. So, at least in the short term, Brown didn't see much changed, but there was more to it than first appeared. Late in the session of 1863, Brown announced in the House that he planned to call for a special committee to investigate the constitutional question in the Canadas. Something had to be done. Surely, all could see that. Upper Canada was shifting ever more in favor of representation by population, and even as it did so, Lower Canada resisted the move. No government could govern by a double majority. That little experiment had just failed, hoisted on the petard of separate school legislation that the Assembly had pushed onto Upper Canada against its wishes. So, what was possible? Did anyone have a solution? Brown wanted rep by pop, but he knew this wasn't going to happen right away, so he suggested that representatives from all persuasions from across the many divides needed to sit down in a room and come up with a solution. The session ended before a vote could be taken on the committee, but Brown had given notice. Even as Sandfield MacDonald clung on to power and Brown schemed for the future, momentous events were taking shape elsewhere. It was in 1863 that contemporaries first realized that the destructive chaos of the Civil War in the United States would almost certainly turn in favor of the Union. Two Northern victories that summer at Gettysburg and then also at Vicksburg showed for the first time that the South really could be beaten. By late in 1863, it seemed only a matter of time before the North would finally defeat the Confederacy. For Canadians, this meant a number of things. Personally, for George Brown, who was an ardent anti-slavery man and abolitionist, it was good news. The premier, Sanfield MacDonald, also spent part of 1863 worrying about the fate of his brother-in-law who was fighting on behalf of the South and was captured. All across British North America, such personal links bound Canadians to the Civil War. But there were also geopolitical dangers. Many in Canada fretted about what other ideas a victorious northern army could get into its head. It didn't help that there were rumored to be thousands of Confederate supporters across Canada. They gathered in taverns and schemed about how to attack the Union from its exposed northern border. In November of 1863, Sandfield MacDonald personally intervened in one instance, informing the American general in charge of defense along the Canadian border of a planned raid on an American island in Lake Erie. The old clear-grit William McDougall actually traveled down south to help smooth over tensions and was present in November for Lincoln's famous, if only quite brief, Gettysburg Address. What the Canadians also very much cared about in late 1863 was the coming end of the Reciprocity Treaty, free trade. The deal was set to end in 1865 unless renewed and it wasn't looking as if the Americans wanted to renew the agreement. So there was, in other words, a good deal for the Canadian government to be thinking about through 1863 and into 1864. I should briefly mention here, but I'll come back to it in future weeks when I turn to the maritime colonies, the plans for an intercolonial railway. The scheme hadn't gone away despite all the squabbles over financing. As it stood late in 1863 and early 1864, the Canadians were planning to cover the cost of a survey of the route to be carried out by a man who has since become famous, Sanford Fleming. We'll come back to him. For the moment, railway policy, though, was mostly counted on the the minus side of the government as so many critics were angry at the high costs and corruption of such schemes. As parliamentarians returned to the still temporary capital of Quebec City in March of 1864, construction was moving ahead swiftly at Ottawa, but they they hadn't moved yet. The best word to describe the situation was uncertain. Sandfield MacDonald and Dorian still ostensibly headed up a government, but a lost by-election since the government last met, plus more personal squabbling, meant that Sandfield MacDonald couldn't be sure he had the confidence of the Assembly. Even as Parliament met and hashed out its first few items of business, Sandfield MacDonald was desperately trying to widen his coalition. He put out feelings to Cartier to see if he would come in, then he moved to old Etienne Pascal Taché. Remember him? He of the last cannon shot fired in British North America fame? He had semi-retired back in the mid-1850s, and here was Sandfield MacDonald unsuccessfully trying to draw him back into the thick of politics. Even as Sanfield MacDonald scrambled, Brown made his move to form a select committee on the Constitution. Plenty of big-name politicians criticized the whole idea, including Cartier and John A. Macdonald. Though interestingly, when Macdonald claimed that the whole idea of federalism was nonsensical, his old ally Cartier did call out that that wasn't his policy. So that was an interesting divide and a development to build on. The heated debate was temporarily postponed, but before Brown could resume it, Sandfield Macdonald surprised everyone by visiting the Governor-General and resigning, he couldn't get a majority to support him, so he decided to pack it in. Could anyone form a government? Of course, there was one man who was always near the top of the list of those who could create a government, John A. MacDonald. In fact, at the Charlottetown Conference later that year of 1864, John A. signed the guest book and where it asked his profession, he decided to go for a bit of a a, a double entendre, writing not lawyer or politician, but instead cabinet maker. The governor general asked one and then another and then another political leader if they could form a government. No one could until he turned to old Taché. Taché said yes, but only because uh, he formed his government as a figurehead. He brought in John A. to lead the English section and Cartier as well. A few other former reformers joined in in the hope of winning over some reform support, but really this was another version of the liberal conservative government of old, of Carche and MacDonald. The problem was though, that they were unlikely to have more support in the current assembly than before. The new government met the House and essentially just tried to pass supply, that is, make sure that all of the money bills were passed so that the basic functions of government could continue without interruption. But the new administration knew that its days were numbered. As it was, the government didn't even last two months. It lasted just enough, though, to breathe life into George Brown's Constitutional Committee for when the new government met in the assembly, Brown's motion came back up for a vote. Against the wishes of both Cartier and Macdonald, it passed. Brown would get his constitutional committee. What's more, even though Macdonald and Cartier had voted against it, they were seconded to sit on the committee anyway. The committee had 20 members, though in the end, a few skipped out, and it was 17 MPs who met through May and into June of 1864. It's a who's who of Canadian politics, with Brown, Dorian, Sanfield MacDonald, and Cartier, MacDonald, and Galt, all the names you've heard me discussing over the last few weeks. Brown invited them all into a room in the legislative buildings. Once they sat down at the conference table, George Brown stood up and quite conspicuously locked the door. Depositing the key into his pocket, he said, now, gentlemen... You must talk about this matter as you cannot leave this room without coming to me." It was a a brilliant move, and uh, so too was the decision to keep the meetings secret. No secretary officially recorded minutes, nothing for anyone outside the room to call them on. Admittedly, not very transparent, but it allowed everyone to speak their minds and to test out ideas. Everything was on the table, the double majority, representation by population, dissolving the Union completely, or federation, both of Canada itself and of a wider British North American Union? What could be done to fix the dysfunctional Canadian family? The committee met eight times before George Brown stood up in the Assembly on June 14th of 1864 to update the House on their progress. Brown announced that the committee had met and was reaching something of a consensus that a a federal solution was the preferred option. Not everyone agreed, most notably both McDonald's, John A. and Sanfield disagreed, but the majority of those in the committee saw federalism as the solution to the Canadian dilemma. Who knows what might have come of that conclusion if events hadn't intervened, but they did. Later that same day, The latest non-confidence motion came to a vote, and the government lost. Here it was again, another failure, another government gone. Two elections in the last three years, four different administrations. What could be done? This was George Brown's moment to shine. Remember all that talk about statesmanship and a, a newer, gentler, less partisan Brown? Well, some of that was... Just bollocks, but a glimmer showed up in June of 1864. With yet another government defeated and another election on the horizon, another election that would almost certainly lead to yet another stalemate, Brown acted. That is, he talked to a couple of friendly conservatives. He let them know that perhaps, just maybe, there might be an alternative, that Brown just might be willing to support this government or really any government if it promised to act on the findings of his committee. Remember, this is George Brown who had always turned down any entreaties by John A. MacDonald. In fact, I haven't even mentioned here the ongoing personal dispute between them going back to the 1850s. There never seemed to have been a a good time to bring it up, but they had been fighting each other back and forth over Brown's role on a government inquiry into penitentiaries. The whole thing had festered to the point that every once in a while, one or the other would bring back up the accusations in Parliament, and everyone would have to endure the mudslinging. The details don't especially matter here, except to say that the two men really disliked each other. Now, MacDonald himself was always willing to work with anyone. It was his political strength. But the stiff-backed George Brown was another type of man. Now, though, he suggested that maybe, just maybe, he could talk. The Conservatives uh, went to Macdonald and told him the big news. Later in the House, with the government seeking a bit more time to hatch another coalition, Brown and McDonald met in the middle of the floor. Was it true? Would Brown receive McDonald and his friend Alexander Galt? Yes, he would. They could see him at his hotel. And so it began. The two sides sparred back and forth. John A. had come around to the idea that he was going to have to change his position on federalism or risk being cast out into political oblivion. Brown wanted representation by population. This wasn't possible, at least not in the current system. So what about some kind of federal solution with Rep by Pop? That might work. Time intervened before any final deal could be made and all three men headed to the house where John A. was set to ask for more time before the house would be dissolved. He had some big news to share. Up until this point, everything had been kept hushed up. Now, John A. stood and announced to the house that he and Galt were in negotiations to find a new coalition that could actually govern. Few would have kept any hope for this. Surely the government was just stalling for time. They would have thought this, Until, that is, MacDonald announced that the man they were in discussions with was none other than George Brown. Brown rose to admit that, yes, this was true. Few would believe that he, George Brown, would give the government a new lease on life. But Brown said the situation this time was different. Quote, When the repeated endeavors, year after year, to get a strong government formed have resulted in constant failure, and we now stand ranged Upper Canada and Lower Canada in such an attitude that no dissolution or dozen of dissolutions is likely to bring about a satisfactory change, I am bound to say that the Honourable Gentlemen opposite are approaching this question with candour and frankness worthy of men occupying their position. And I do hope that the Honourable Members will approach it with but one desire to consider the interests of both sections of the province and to find a settlement of our difficulties. No sooner had he stopped speaking than a a French lower Canadian member rushed across the aisle to shake his hand. The house burst out with what was mostly applause and amazement, a new day dawned for Canada. The rest was only details, though some of the details did matter. Over the next four days, MacDonald and Cartier and their supporters sat down to hammer out exactly what the whole thing would look like with Brown. Brown wanted to move first on federation of Canada alone and representation by population. This to Johnny MacDonald would be political death as he feared being completely beaten out in Upper Canada. For MacDonald, the only hope was for a wider British North American federation. They decided that the government would introduce legislation on a federal solution in the Canadas at the next session, but would first proceed with overtures to the other British North American colonies on a federal union. Then there was the whole matter of what the coalition would look like. Brown wanted to stay out of the government entirely. He didn't want to be tainted by it, nor to work at close hand with MacDonald. But both MacDonald and Brown's own supporters urged him to join. The whole scheme would only work, they insisted, if he put skin in the game, if he made it a formal coalition and joined the government. He finally conceded. The new cabinet will be headed up by that old figurehead, Taché, and the Liberal Conservatives under Cartier would control all six seats from Lower Canada. Upper Canada will be split, three seats for John A and his followers and three seats for Brown and his followers. This was quite a concession on Brown's part given how strong his support was in Upper Canada. But clearly, Brown was feeling generous. It wasn't long before that he had written, I would a thousand times rather go out of public life than be at the mercy of such people. Well, here he was very much at their mercy and it had all been his doing. Canada had a new government now committed to a federation of the British North American colonies. The governor general wrote some letters to his colleagues in the East and everyone got to work. Within a couple of months, all the key players from Canada, Brown and Macdonald, Cartier and Galt, Darcy McGee too, boarded a steamer and set sail for the Maritimes. They were bound for Charlottetown Prince Edward Island, determined to convince the Maritimers that this solution to a Canadian problem might also be something to benefit all British North Americans. Thanks for listening to 1867 and all that. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe if you haven't already, and please also consider leaving a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Better yet, head over to our Patreon page and sign up to be an official 1867 and all that patron. Next week, the podcast steps out of its parochial Central Canadian focus and heads eastward. We need to catch up on the colonial history of the four maritime colonies, and we're going to start with Newfoundland. Spoiler alert, they don't decide to join Confederation, not until 1949 but they are all around the negotiations in the 1860s, and we're going to find out in part what was on the Newfoundlanders' minds and why, perhaps, they weren't quite so entranced by what the Great Canadian Coalition had to offer. Until next time, remember, there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that.